Welcome back, having Brainiacs to the Readathon. Talking about chapter 3.2. I forgot to post the text. Oh well, not to worry. Um, we read the rest of chapter 3.2. We're up to chapter 4. Um, oh gosh. I skipped a day. I've skipped a couple of days in the last week. I've skipped two days, to be precise. And no one has cared. <laughs> Including me. I oh, like. I really want to get this done, but I also just am so over this book. We have, we have, uh, fifteen chapters left. I think that's not much. That is not much. Now, like, part of me wants to just like read two chapters per day and get it done in you know a week, um, and then the other part of me is like, just wants to do half a chapter. And skip a day here and there and just really just plot along and not put effort in, you know, or like not that that's not the right way to say it, but like not exert myself to, you know, not strain myself to finish it. Uh, Because reading two chapters of this in a row is, you know, that ruins your day (laughs) pretty much. So, you know, do I ruin seven days in a row, but then be finished or just to keep chipping away at it. Anywho, chapter four goes like this. As soon as Teresa had removed the tablecloth, my eyes went to a bulky volume, The Brothers Karamazov, my other favorite book, and determined to break the back of the story, I threw myself into an armchair saying, if I read 50 pages every evening, I shall soon get through it. And I read on and on through the 50 pages that my conscience has stipulated for and might have read to a hundred of the endless corridors down which I had been wandering and the great halls through which I had passed had not suddenly seemed to dissolve into vapour. A talent, I said, that appeals to a young man of today. The pygmy admires the giant, however loosely his frame may be put together, and our young writers lift their pale, etiolated faces to Dostoevsky. We've had enough of art, is their cry. Give us nature. And this book fulfills all their aspirations. It is impersonal and vague as nature, I said, returning to the consideration of the book, finding myself obliged to admit that I could detect a dribble of outline in Aloysia as much as I may be detected in the icons on the walls, a man of genius without doubt on a different plane from our miserable writers of fiction, but inferior to his own countrymen. To one, at least, Turgenev, and on the whole inferior to Balzac. Some rough spots there may be in Balzac, some rocks, but rocks are better than marsh. And my thoughts went to the philosophical studies of Louis Lambert, Seraphita, Jesus Christ in Flanders, These books affected me times past, but to read them again would be to run the risk of great disillusion, so why read them? As I took a cigar from the box, my thought returned to Paris, and I remembered that in about a year I had begun to pine for London, for the English language, English food, for my mother's house in Alfred Place. Close by it had been it I had rented a studio in Cromwell Mews, and Malays used to come to see me go to Cremorne Gardens or the Argyle Rooms, armed with a couple of sovereigns, was merely to procure for himself essential gratification hardly on a higher level than that which schoolboys indulge in. But if he go there with only a few cab fares in his pocket, he will be obliged to reconsider himself physically, and those negligences in dress which were the despair of his parents will vanish. 
His boots will begin to improve in shape and quality. A pin will appear on his necktie. Or maybe he will wear his scarf in a ring. His shoulders will take a finer turn. And his head will be upreared above them proudly. And if he would be loved for himself, he must cultivate an interesting attitude of mind. He must be able to slough himself at will, his outer skin, I should have said, and take part in wider humanity, in dreams, hopes, aspirations, and ideals not strictly his own, only his through sympathy with the lives of others. The only one who knew me in the days of the Cremorne and Argyle rooms is dear Edward, and it always interests me to hear him say that I began myself out of nothing, developing from the mere sponge of the vertebrae upward. I should have liked another simile, for nature has never interested me as much as art. Perhaps I should never have paid any attention to nature if I hadn't, if it hadn't been for art. I would have preferred Edward to have said that I was at once the sculptor and the block of marble of my own destiny and that every failure to win a mistress in the Cremorne Gardens was a chipping way of the vague material that concealed the statue. But the simile would perhaps not have been so correct, for to say that a man is at once the sculptor and the block of marble means that he is a conscious artist, and I was not that in those days. I worked unconsciously. Yes, Edward is right. I developed upward from the sponge, returning to Paris about 18 months later to a sort of minor Lewis, having not only imbibed a good, ideal of his, good deal of his mind, but even fashioned myself so closely to his likeness that Julian, who caught sight of me on the boulevard, soon after my return, thought for a moment that I was Lewis. On arriving at the Gare de Nord, the first thing to do was to find Lewis, for without him the evening would never wear any, but the concierge told me that Monsieur Hawkins had left and that he did not know his present address. Julian took his coffee every evening at the Café Vivienne, but never came before eight. I waited till half past and then bethought myself of Alphonsine's. Monsieur Hawkins and Madame Alice had not dined there for some weeks. Alphonsine did not know their address. The dinner seemed worse than usual and the chatter of the women more tedious. Uh, sorry, more tedious. At last, somebody said that she thought Marie Peregrine knew Madame Alice's address, but Marie was not at Alphonsine's that evening. She came in, however, a little later and told me that Madame Alice had was living at Rue de Feu, number 14, an apartment au Jules, and away I went. Madame was at home, but she had a gentleman dining, 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 dining with her. Monsieur Hawkins. Yes, the servant answered timidly, and I burst in. Louis was glad to see me, and Alice welcomed me with hard, empty laughter. She was glad to see me back again. Or did she fear that painting would distract Louis's attention from her? However this may be, she welcomed me and was certainly pleased at my admiration of the fine suit of apartments that I found her in. Yes, I have been going ahead, she said, leading me through the windows into a strip of garden where tall trees were trained up high. She liked my question, who is the fellow who pays for all this? And I heard the name of Philippa for the first time. A great name it was then, in the Parisian financial world. After going bankrupt for a dozen millions or more, he bought an island in the Mediterranean, and it was he, or one of his associates, that kept Alice never coming to see her 
oftener than once a week, and then only in the afternoon. So when you hear the servant whisper, Monsieur Ishishi, you'll just skip around to the cafe and wait. And I shall find Louis there, I added. The remark did not please him, for he was trying to carry off the life he was leading with great airs. And when I went to him for a few days after, seriously alarmed for his artistic future, saying that I had heard in the studio that he had not been there for months, he answered that I had fixed a fixed income, but he had only 400 francs a month from his mother, and it was not easy to abstract Julian's fees, 100 francs a month, from four. He had counted upon selling the landscape which we were looking at, a flowering glade in the woods of Ville de Vivere, but the customer had been called away to South America suddenly. He would come back, but in the meantime, the picture was not finished. He would like to have done more to it. But he was so hard up, he could not afford the train fare, and my heart melting at the thought of so much genius wasted for the sake of a train fare, I went away with him to Ville d'Avray, and we found motives and painters in the woods and strayed under flowering bows, and returned with two pictures in time for dinner in Rue des Faux and a great deal of art talk that was continued during and after dinner, till Alice said, You two have been away all day in the woods and have no doubt had a very pleasant time, but where do I come in? You come back here merely to talk painting, and she flounced out of the room, leaving us wondering at her ill temper and how long she would remain away. She appeared in the doorway ten minutes after, and turning on her heel said, I don't know what you two are going to do, I'm going to the boys, and you, Lewis, what are you going to do? I asked, and as Lewis did not dare tell her that he would prefer to spend the evening lounging in her drawing room, he had to accompany her to the cascade and sit with her in the cafe till midnight, watching the celebrated Kursons arriving and departing in their carriages. So-and-so is now with so-and-so. He gives her a hundred thousand francs a year at El Le Trompe tous les of Le Petit Show. She was interested in these details, and not unnaturally, for she knew she was now very nearly in the front rank, and to keep her there, we had to take her out every evening. If we did not go to a theatre, we went to a music hall. The Foyles Bourgeois was coming into fashion at that time, and we were often there till it was time to go to the Mobile, a tedious place of amusement. The Mobile always was, to my thinking, and the dinner that had cost over 80 francs and the box at the Folies Bergeres, which had broken into a second hundred-franc note, did not cause me as many pangs of conscience as the five-franc entrance fee. Ladies enter, the Marbille free, and Alice sometimes paid for Lewis, but very often before she had time to slip five francs into his hand, some friends engaged her in conversation, and then he would beseech me to lend him money and it angered me to see him fling the coin down with the air of un grand serio. Half an hour is the longest time that anybody remains in the garden, and as we walked round the estrade in silence, I often thought of my poor Ballantuba tenants. I wonder how much longer Alice intends to keep me waiting. Sometimes she joined us, sometimes she went away with her aristocratic connections, as we walked home, Lewis would rail against her, swearing that he would never see her again, turning a deaf ear to my pleading. Now it amused me to plead for her and to soothe him, and I agreed that she should not have left his arm as abruptly as she had done, and her position was a difficult one, torn between love and necessity. He would answer that he wasn't going to be made a fool of before all Paris, and delighted me to see him put 
on the Grand Air, though if I had been Alice's amont de cour, I should like to have been treated, frankly, as a ponce, one that was has to make way for the Bichqui Heplipo, as in Villains Ballard, to be an amont de cour, as Lewis was, and Chante, would have filled me with shame, my instinct being always to be ashamed of nothing but the ash- to be ashamed, and it was from the day that Lewis confessed himself ashamed of the role he was playing that he lost his cast in my eyes. I began to catch myself wondering how it was that he did not scruple about wasting all his life with Alice. He seemed to have abandoned painting altogether, and it was with some unwillingness that I followed them one night to a masked ball dressed in the fantastic costume of Valentine de Le Petit Four. Was it in Perrin's I met La Belle Hollandaise? I think it was a Perrin's, the great Cours de Sainte, where on weekdays young girls from Faubourg Saint Germain learnt their first steps, and on Sunday nights all the demi mondings assembled, Leonie Leblanc, Cora Pearl, Blanche Dietigny, Marie Byron, Margaret Byron, sorry, Hortense Schneider, Julia Barron, and how many others? It was at Perrin's that I met her, and at not at a commoner bowl in the Rue Vivienne, she was sitting by Cora Pearl, watching me, attracted no doubt at my f- at first by the red and yellow tights that I wore, and recognising in her eyes a quiet look of invitation, I summoned up all my courage and crossed the ballroom to inquire if she would dance with me, and she, w- which she did, passing into my arms with a delightful motion, making me feel her presence without any vulgar thrusting of her body upon me. The music ceased, and she said, "You're with friends." Then my heart misgave me, and I answered, Would you like to be introduced? She said she would, and it was plain that Alice was jealous of my new friend. Like myself, she believed that it could not be me, but Lewis that she sought. But as soon as she assured that this was not so, her attitude towards La Belle Hollandaise became friendlier, and we four, at the close of the ball, drove to a fashionable restaurant, and afterwards to the Rue du Faux, Alice proposing a grand bivouac, for she did not care to sleep in her bed while her guests slept upon the floor. But we would not accept her bed, and my heart again misgave me, thinking that the evening, like many evenings before, would prove platonic for me, as if reading my thought, La Belle Hollandaise asked me what moment in the evening I had begun to love her. When you kissed me. But I haven't kissed you at all yet, she said. Wait a little while, and leaning her cheek against mine, she whispered strange, incomprehensible things in a low, quiet voice that drove her mad her eyes curious and enigmatic fixed on me, her pointed face lifted to my, her, to mine, her chin enticing and her soft brown hair brushing my cheek. I can recall the sweet moment when she drew her bracelets from her wrist, but I cannot call to mind any part of the undressing, only that she was always beside me, curled serpent-like a serpent of old Nile, for a woman can coil like one, and during the night I often cried out in terror, awakening Lewis and Alice, who lay asleep in the rich imperial bed. She must have kissed me on the morning, and gone to Alice's bathroom, and dressed and done her hair, but I remember none of these things, only that we once stood before a large picture of Diaz in her house in Avenue Victor Hugo. In those days, I prefaced my love affairs with a copy of Mademoiselle de Miopin. I held in one, one in my hand with a famous passage marked for her to read and can still hear her telling me that she had been offered 300,000 francs to go to Russia. But if you go, I shall never see you again. I don't know whether I shall go or not. I don't know what's going on to happen to me. Where, in the last words of La Belle Hollandaise, the last words she addressed to me, and if I relate the incident to our meeting, it is because we never forget who 
her who reveals sensuality to us. She is now as old as the fair helm maker, but on that memorable night, Alice and Lewis seemed perfunctory lovers. A few evenings later, he offered Alice to me, for they had outlived their love for each other and were now seeking to maintain it in excess and orgy. Her face wore an odd smile when he proposed her to me, so the thought of may come to her that rather to him... The instinct of every woman being to turn to him who has witnessed her love as soon as she wearies of her lover. So, if she had begun to weary of her lover about this time, we may acquit her of any deep plan to involve me in the quarrel with my cousin when, on my coming to invite her out to dinner, she answered that she would dine with me, but she was not yet dressed and I should have to wait in the drawing room till she had had her bath, unless indeed I did not mind following her into the cabinet toilet. A proposal gladly accepted, for I did not doubt that I should discover in her a more beautiful model than any that had posed in Julian's studio, even if her breasts were too large for a nymph's. On stepping out of her bath, she dried herself in many picturesque attitudes, whilst we talked of her perfections, the length of her leg, from the ankle to the knee, and the spring of her hip. But of love not a word was spoken, for I was not certain that Lewis might not have hidden himself behind a curtain between the tester and the ceiling unbeknownst to her. She would not believe me at first, he said three months later, after telling me that he had left Alice for good. She would not believe me at first, and all she could find to say to persuade me was to remain. You couldn't leave such a pretty pair of breasts. Soon after, I heard from him that the rupture was confirmed by Alice herself, who had passed him in her carriage in the Champs-Élysées. She had looked the other way, and there was such scorn in her face that he vowed he would prove to her that in losing her he had not lost everything. A few days later, he introduced me to a pretty blonde Swede, a woman who was well thought of, but with hardly a teeth of Alice's reputation. I never heard from Lewis why he left her, but one day a carriage drew up by the pavement on which I was walking. The glass was let down, and a Swede told me that she had been obliged to send Lewis away because she found a voiture de remise indispensable. La voiture de remise est elle amant de cour son la rue de femme. She said, Comme combossine le serpom. And the wisdom of this second right rate lighter love begot no doubt of many experiences, called my thoughts back to Alice, who, since she had thrown out her amoncourt de cour, was rapidly becoming one of the celebrated demi mondaines in Paris. She, whilst she went up in the world, Lewis sank lower, attaching himself to women who could hardly barely afford him 300 thanks a month, the price of a grisette in the quartier Latin, an occasional banknote that his mother used to send him she could afford no longer. His sister was a great expense, and he came to me one day to tell me that he had decided to earn his own living. Van der Kiko, you know whom I mean, he said, has a small china factory, and he agreed to take me as an apprentice. I'm going to live with him in the Avenue but you'll see nobody. You'll be exiled. I'm wary of the life I've been leading, and you'll come and see me sometimes, though it's a long way off. I'll come every Sunday, I answered, and a few Sundays later I found him in Van de Kirko in building a wall. So you've come at last, and he took me into his house and showed me some of his attempts at painting China and interested me in the manufacture à la Cassonne Petit et Graffeux. Van der Kieke was an ex-communist, and Lewis told me that he, how a door had opened at the last moment when the government troops were at his heels. He had rushed through it, 
and through the house, and he was now married, and that was why he had refused my invitation to dine and go to Constance afterwards. Lewis advised me that the restaurants in the court, Etienne Palapromé, were, but we could get some simple food, a coin de la relegate, and afterwards at Constance he would introduce me to some very dangerous criminals and talk to me of the thieves he knew and the robberies they planned and were planning. He talked to me about their mistresses, exciting my imagination, for their nicknames were odd and picturesque. If he be not the lover of a great demi modane, he likes to live among thieves and ponces, I thought. One extreme to or the other of society for him, and somewhat unreal person. But why is one person more unreal than another, I asked myself, deciding that a man without a point of view always conveys the impression of unreality. The long street that we used to walk up together rose in my imagination, and Lewis growing more confident till from lamppost to lamppost, telling me that it was not idleness, as I suppose, that kept him out of Julian's studio, nor was it because he had no money to pay the fees. Julian had left him work for nothing, but he could not accept favours from Julian. The tone of his voice in which he said this surprised me, and he then became still more confidential. He uh, said that he could not go to Julian's studio because his sister was Julian's mistress. I don't know why I should have been so surprised, but I was surprised that such a thing should have happened, and that he should have told me, and very much concerned, I begged of him to tell me how it had all come about. Apparently in the simplest way. He had introduced her to Julian, and my memory was has dropped a stitch. Something and something. He had called at her hotel, and the concierge had told him that Madame had gone away to the country, and the next time they met, he asked her where she had been. She answered that she had been to the country with Julian, but you didn't come back that night. Where did you sleep? With Fatty, she had answered coolly. He did not think it right, and he did not think it wrong that his sister should live as it pleased her. He was always unpuvial de nature without a point of view, and returning from the coal box, for the fire had sunk very low, I picked up the thread of my thoughts again. He had told me that it was an on account of debts he had given up work at the studio, and I remembered that he had confessed to owing Runoff 100 francs. Julian had lent him 50. He had had a bit of Chadwick he had borrowed from Julian's born, and it was this last debt that had convinced him that sooner or later he would have to earn his own living, and my heart warmed once more towards this handsome fellow who could take the rough with the smooth, and was as light-hearted in the Avenue d'Attilly as in the Rue du Faux. And I praised him to Julian as we drank our coffee at the corner table. One until one night, after listening in silence, Julian asked me if it had not occurred to me that in losing Lewis's art had suffered a great loss. Lewis's defection from the studio had never struck me in quite so serious oops, sorry. Um a light before. And I asked Julian if he thought that a great genius was being wasted at Barrier Diatilli. As if he did not hear me, Julian said that casual loans of money were no use and that it would be better for me not to see Lewis any more unless I could do something definite for him. Why shouldn't you invite him to live with you for a year, 18 months, two years will be sufficient? But I live in the Hotel de Vrissy. The proper thing for you to do is to take an apartment, give him the room and let him be certain of his breakfast and dinner and pay, and pay for his washing. His mother will lend him a little pocket money and 
You can work at my studio. But the studio fees, of course I couldn't take your money. Julian had caught me, and feeling that I lacked courage to say no and bear the blame of allowing a great genius to wither unknown by down in the Baradirtli, I wrote to Lewis, telling him of Julian's proposal to me. And next day he came up and to thank me, to assure me that he would try to justify the confidence that we placed in him. He did not give me time to consider the wisdom of the sacrifice I was making, and very wisely, but set out at once to find an apartment that would suit us, coming next day to me with joyful tidings that he had seen one in the Passage de Panoramas in the Galerie Fideau. But I don't think I could live in Passage de Panoramas, and I begged him to look for another apartment. But this one is the first floor, he urged. We shan't have to go up many stairs, and I shall only have to run around the galleries to Julian's studio. That will save us getting up half an hour earlier in the morning and walking through the wet streets. We shall never see the sky nor feel the wind blowing, and I looked up at the glass roofing through which trickled a dim sort of twilight. The sky and wind are well enough at our doors, he said, but once we are within doors, there, the more we are within, the better. I have seen other apartments, but nothing is suitable for our convenience. You're going to work, aren't you? And if you are, nothing else matters. It was with such spacious argument that I was inveiled into my prison, and more or less feebly I agreed to forego light and air for 18 months or two years. And that is the end of chapter four. Thanks for listening, if indeed you still are. I'll see you tomorrow.